arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. For a while there, I never thought I was going to get you. Believe me, you had me going in such circles, I couldn't figure it out. Suddenly, I thought of something. How clever that first murder was. The phone gimmick. Working late in the office. Brilliant. Are you awarding gold medals today? Yes, for the first one. Not for the second one. That was sloppy. Mrs. Melville, she'd have been very disappointed. Well, come on, get to the climax, Lieutenant. You're talking to a writer. Am I? That's not what I heard. And that's the key, that you're not a writer. When Mrs. Ferris told me that you didn't contribute to the writing, that her husband did all the work, that's a lie. I had to say to myself, how could a man with no talent for mysteries make up such a clever murder? If he were that genius, you'd be able to write your own books. Go ahead, I'm fascinated, as boring as it may be. Then I got it. The first one, the clever one, that wasn't yours. The second one, the sloppy one, that was yours. But not the first. Oh? And whose idea was that, then? Your partner's. Had to be. And his wife told me how conscientious he was. You know, the way he used to write down his ideas on every odd scrap of paper, backs of matches, whatever ah, was Ah, so that's why you wouldn't let the movies in. Well, I had to rummage around here before they emptied everything out. Is this your partner's handwriting? Well, I think I can prove it is. Maybe I ought to read this to you. Idea for a Melville book, perfect alibi. A wants to kill B. Drives B to a remote house and has him call his wife in city. Tells her he's working late at the office. Bang, bang. Sound familiar? That's the plot you used. Practically word for word. Should I read some more? No. Officer? With this, I think I got a conviction, don't you? You gotta admit I had you going for a while now, didn't I? Yes, you did. <laughs> you wanna know the irony of all of this? That is my idea. Only a really good one I ever had. I must have told it to Jim over five years ago. Whoever thought that idiot would write it down. Everyone likes to imagine constructing the perfect murder. The great Jack Cassidy, Tony Award-winning actor and two-time Emmy nominee, appeared on Columbo three times. The first in the 1971 Murder by Book, directed by Steven Spielberg. The blogger Aurora, in an article Once Upon a Screen, said Jack Cassidy was the greatest Columbo murderer, and he described the perfect scenario. Ken tells Jim to meet him downtown in the car and stays behind to ransack the office, making it look like a break-in occurred. He drives Jim to his cabin in San Diego and shoots him dead, telling the local store owner, Lily Lasanka, that he's in town alone for the weekend. 
Ken calls Jim's wife, Joanna, to tell her he had left Jim working late in the office. It's not certain whether a Los Angeles police detective is all set for Ken to get away with murder. Well, somebody in the funeral march for the maestro has planned this murder well and believes the effort is foolproof. Cassidy, at the end of the Columbo episode, has no remorse and is gloating that the murder was his idea and not his partner's. If you can wade through Steve Corbett and Mrs. Picotter and all the wacky characters, we'll find a murder here, unless it's perfect. Episode 2 of Funeral March for the Maestro by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Funeral March for the Maestro, Chapter 5. Jones did not see Strickland's cruiser at the regional medical center's parking lot as he looped under the small trees out front. Top floor of the light brown main building was capped by two block wings and a New Hampshire and American flag hung limp atop the lofty flagpoles out front. He veered into the side parking lot and quickly parked the jeep. The emergency room to the far left was busy with a couple of red and white ambulances back to the wider doors past the lobby. Jones scampered along the sidewalk and lobby windows and entered through the automatic doors. He moved along the edge of an open room with overhead TV monitors and people with glum expressions slouched in vinyl cast chairs waiting for emergency room treatment. Jones approached the nurse's station, a buffer, between the lobby and the back treatment rooms. The little nurse at the counter said she had no information on Locke's condition, but she could have one of the nurses check out back. Jones nodded and stepped up to an adjacent water fountain. As he sucked in a cool, bubbly stream from the stainless steel fountain, he thought he saw Steve Corbett seated near the front windows. Jones stepped back from the water fountain. Corbett had short brown hair, glasses, and brilliant blue eyes. He crossed his legs and alternated quick glances between Jones and the overhead TV. His jeans were faded, and he wore a red and black Hamilton College jersey, but his sneakers were sporty and new. Jones meandered down the shiny beige tiles behind the other chairs. Corbett's distressed look did not seem caused by physical pain. Coach Jones, he said slowly and stood. He extended his hand as if he were thrusting a fencing sword toward an opponent. You're here to see about Lark Larson. Yes, I am. What about yourself? Same. You know Lark? He had a ready, attractive smile, but his moves were stilted. Everyone knows Lark. He's a legend in Hamilton. Jones nodded and kept eye contact. Why aren't you with your wife and mother-in-law? Corbett's eyes opened wider. Well, they're expediting things, you know. There isn't going to be a funeral or a period of mourning. I'm afraid my father-in-law was not very religious. He specified cremation and no memorial service. Well, I would think they'd need you at a time like this, Steve, especially without a funeral, said Jones. Corbett did not break eye contact. Your father-in-law was murdered, Steve. I know. Were you on campus when he died? asked Jones. Mr. Jones, said the nurse at the counter. She waved him over. Excuse me. Jones paralleled the chairs up to the nurse. What have you got? They are monitoring Mr. Larson right now. All his vital signs are stable. Good, good. Can I go back there? Are you family? She asked and looked over her bifocals. I'm close enough. Could you check? My name is Matthias Jones. Mr. Jones, if you're not family, please. 
She stared and nodded her head. All right. As she headed out back, he glanced over his shoulder. Corbett's orange chair was now occupied by a large woman with crutches. Jones raised his brows in reverse direction. He darted toward the front window span, pressed his fingers against the cool glass, and scanned the parking lot. Mr. Jones, called the nurse from the corridor doors. Jones clenched his fist and again checked the parking lot to the street. He reluctantly jaunted back to the nurse. Mr. Larson and his wife insisted you come back. Well, she's not his wife. She's his girlfriend. Hmm, hanky-panky. Yeah, a lot of hanky and not much panky. She led him through a corridor intersection, past the ailing patients in the open side rooms. Beyond the glass doors was an oval counter extending like a berthed aircraft carrier below overhead monitors listing patient names. As they moved through the doors, Jones spotted Lark's name listed on the blue and red screen. But it bothered him that he had let Steve Corbett slip away. She brought him around the corner to another nurse. Try and keep him calm, said the younger nurse in green fatigues. Yes, yes, of course. Lark, minus his silver-rimmed glasses, was sprawled out on the white sheets. IVs were attached to his arms and wires connected to his chest under the johnny. The brown-permed flow opened her blue eyes and rushed Jones like a linebacker after the quarterback. Oh, Matthias! She hit Jones' shoulder hard enough to move him back. Jones rubbed his collarbone. Is that Matthias? Matthias, are you here? asked Lark with a dazed look. Flo, you know your instructions. I'm here, Lark, said Jones, moving toward Flo, still clinging like a tourniquet on his arm. Thank you, nurse. Sure, said the counter nurse as she left down the corridor. Jones shuffled over the tiles. Lark's face was slightly flushed, but his blue eyes were clear. Lark, that man, Chance, is ill-mannered and obnoxious. Don't get yourself all worked up, Lark, said Jones. He was mad because I wouldn't talk. You made the right decision, Snookums. Jones looked at Flo, still attached to his arm, and then back at Lark. What about your attorney? I already made that call. I think you should still call LG. Lark looked younger without his glasses. I'm going with the odds, old boy. What do you mean? I'm going with the tried and the trusted. Another lawyer, that's fine, I guess, said Jones. Flo finally released his arm. Lark made the call personally. Jones looked at Lark's bright blue eyes and then toward the quirky Flo. Who's the lawyer? Sid Smoltz, said Lark, beaming. Who? An ace, said Lark. Local guy? asked Jones, glancing back at the nurse's station. He wondered why Steve Corbett left so fast. I mean, local to the Prince William area? Oh no, I didn't want to prejudice my case. Lark, just make sure he's a good lawyer. Your opera will be up on murder charges. He's undefeated. Jones exhaled and rolled his tongue around his cheek. I know I'll regret asking this, but what do you mean he's undefeated? He's undefeated. Sid and I both went to Kokomo U, and then he went on to law school, and he moved to North Carolina. Lark and Sidney always exchange letters. Sidney is a big bridge player. Skunked the girls at the club five years ago when he was up here, said Lark. 
Well, at least you have a lawyer, said Jones. Lark, tell me you didn't kill Nussbaum. I have been instructed by my attorney to remain silent and defer all questions to his office. Jones closed his eyes as he spoke. Lark, it's me, Matthias. We both heard gunshots, and you were inside. I'd been instructed by my attorney to remain silent and defer all questions to his office. He opened his eyes and threw up his hands. Oh, boy. Did you see anyone else around the conservatory when you drove up or went inside? Lark pretended to button his lip. Lark, I'm on your side. Well, Sydney is handling the traffic pileup also, said Flo. You're lucky you weren't killed going the wrong way on the interstate, Lark, said Jones. Lark again twisted his pinched thumb and index finger over his lips. We were afraid of all the lawsuits, said Flo. Come on, Snookums. We rehearsed this before Matthias arrived. We've been instructed by our attorney to remain silent and defer all questions to his office. Flo turned to Jones. We have been instructed by our attorney to remain silent and defer all questions to his office. Listen, Lark, I'm headed over to Father Gallagher's for dinner. You can let your lawyer handle this, but a word to the wise or... You better start trying to remember exactly what you saw when you drove around the library. Every detail. Roland Chance and Herbert Lane will prosecute you into jail if you don't. I commend your spirit, old boy. See what you can uncover for old Lark. Oh, easier said than done. Jones stared at Lark for several moments, realizing the former coach would not volunteer any information. Well, good night. Good night, Flo. I'm glad your signs are stable, Lark. He gave Jones the thumbs-up sign, and Flo released her grip. A-OK. Right. Good night. Still massaging his shoulder, Jones walked from the unit. He questioned whether Lark really had chest pains at all. He thanked the nurse at the counter and pulled the cell phone from his shorts pocket once he was in the parking lot. Strickland's number was pre-programmed. The line rang a few seconds later. George Strickland's cell phone, answered Wendell. Wendell, where's George? Please state your name. It's Matthias. Put George on the phone. Jones stopped at the curb. Lark is resting comfortably. He's okay. He nearly died, right, Arnie? Wendell, where is George? Wait, Pudgy's restroom door is opening. We're getting the cruiser gassed up. Arnie, put out that cigarette. Yeah, 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 said Arnie in the background. Can I speak to George? asked Arnie. You guys worry too much. Jones approached the jeep, unlocked the door, and slid into the seat. Is he coming to the phone or what? Arnie grumbled. Oh, I dropped it. What? Jones started the jeep and shifted back. Well? Arnie just dropped his cigarette into the drain near the tanks. I'll call you back. Wendell? Jones brought the jeep out to the end of the parking lot, jabbed the end button with his thumb, and threw the phone on the seat. Maybe it's me. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 6. St. Bart's heavy stone tower rose above the fluffy green trees as Jones finally connected to Strickland's cell phone. Gee, George, uh, do you think he could spare a minute? I just got off the phone to the physical plant. 
Shirley told me Steve Corbett was assigned to the first and second floors of the library this morning. That puts him in close proximity to the conservatory. Jones slowed near the church's stone facade. While I just left the hospital... Well, you got that right. Listen, who do I run into in the waiting room but Steve Corbett? Well, what did he tell you? Not much. He was gone when I got out of Locke's room. They live on Station Air right next to Newsbomb's house. I'll track them down. Jones signaled and turned into the church lot adjacent to the large rectory behind the church. The faded green awnings were still extended along the side windows. Mick Dumas tells me Newsbomb hated Steve Corbett. They haven't spoken in some time. Well, Mick would be a guy to talk to, said Strickland, turning from the phone. Make a note of that, Wendell. Roland has talked to the members of the symphony, but didn't see any problem, no leads. Wendell, are you listening to me? Wendell's made it through okay, asked Jones, shutting off the jeep. What do you mean? Larney dropped that cigarette at the gas pumps. He stepped onto the asphalt. After camp, the line beeped. I have a second call. Hold on, Matthias. Jones kept the phone to his ear as he edged toward the front porch. The orange-haired Gallagher, his collar off, sat in a wicker chair beyond the balustrade. An older couple and a young man listened to one of his stories. Jones waited on the walk until Strickland came back on the line. That was ballistics. Lark definitely fired the gun. Nitrates on his hands. Oh, come on, that's ridiculous. But nobody knows who owns that gun. Smith & Wesson, model 242, 38 caliber. Only weighs about 19 ounces. Well, 18.9. Aluminum alloy frame, nice titanium finish. Never mind the specs, George. Who is it registered to? It was stolen, Matthias, from a dealer in Chicago. Locke been up to Chicago lately? Asked Jones with a chuckle. Listen, maybe Locke fired the second shot. Why the minute space between the shots? Well, why would he fire the gun if noose bombs only shot with one bullet? Well, that's a good question, and nobody's found the impact point of that second shot. We're back at the station. I'll see you in your office tomorrow, after camp. The moth fluttered and glided around the porch's fluted glass cover as Gallagher brought Jones another moisture-beaded glass of cold beer. So, I first met him when I was transferred here from Massachusetts. Fifteen years ago, said Jones, sipping under the beer's foam. Correct. When I was invited to one of his parties, I was astounded at the way they just siphoned off the money. The food spread was like something the Fletchers would provide at one of their bashes at Fletcher Hill. Arnold was always a superb dresser and the house was loaded with antiques, but they always seemed to have enough money to spend. Well, I remember him in a Mercedes, but I'll tell you, he had to go some to get Locke to loan him money. Locke wouldn't even loan his girlfriend money. Gallagher flashed a smile and raised the thin frosted glass of iced tea. Yes, but Locke Larson fired the gun, right? Jones shook his head and swallowed the cold beer. I think he picked up the gun. You know how nervous Locke can get. He must have pulled the trigger and the shot flew out the window. And now this lawyer of his has him clamming up. Well, I have my theories. 
Gallagher sipped the iced tea and set the glass on the side table next to the newspaper. Are you taking one of my side roads? Maybe. Believe me, in my position, he said, picking up the Enterprise newspaper. I've read the stories, and I don't want to be a source, and I can't afford to spread gossip. No, of course not, Father. Especially after someone has just been murdered. Jones held the glass, tilted back his head, and laughed. But you will anyway. Lenore Picarda, the mayor's wife. What about her? You know her? asked Gallagher. I met her right after the shooting. She was at the Hamilton police station, which I thought was odd. The maestro and Lenora go back at least ten years, and she and Picarda go to this parish, or at least she does. Right. Well, what are you saying, Jim? Was she involved with Newsbomb? No proof. And I reiterate that. They worked very closely together for a long time, as far as I know. I only hear rumors. And again, rumors have a habit of reaching the papers. If the maestro wasn't murdered, I wouldn't even mention it. Well, I don't think the mayor's wife would be fooling around with the symphony conductor, said Jones. Too many people would know. You know about Picarda's reputation. I think she gets lost in the shuffle. Well, Picarda is a sleaze, I know that. People sometimes build up resentment and they don't even know it. That could cause her to... stray. What are you implying, Jim? I don't know. Just rumors about her and Nussbaum. Jones stood. Then he walked over and leaned on the balustrade. The tapering row of streetlights cast rounded glows on the sidewalk back toward the center of the city. Okay, let's go down the side road. What would she have to gain by knocking him off? That I don't know. She was always at the dinner parties with him, but then so was Mrs. Helger and Benice. They all have alibis. What about Steve Corbett? Never accompanied them. Never. Jones stroked his chin. Well, ain't that interesting, Jim. Corbett was at the hospital today. I assume he was checking on Lark's alleged condition. Gallagher dragged the phone across the end table's glass surface and lifted the receiver. Who are you calling? Ann Sloan. You know her. She's one of my workers in the parish office. She's always yapping about everything that goes on in this parish. You mean she gossips? Well, yes. Gallagher raised his light brows as the line rang. Hello, Ann. No, no, we're not entertaining. I'm sitting here with Matthias Jones. Gallagher looked at Jones. Oh, then you know about it. No, I guess Larson is all right. What makes you say that? I know that, Ann, but you don't have any proof. Well, I go to social occasions, and, and I'm accompanied by a woman from the parish, but... You're digging yourself deeper, Jim. No, you can tell me. What? The Prince William... When was that? Oh, dear Lord. And who saw them? Really? 2 a.m.? Yes, I agree. That does not look good. Anything else? I see. No, I won't mention your name. Of course not. What's that? Yes, I understand the bishop is coming by this week. Yes, thank you, Anne. Good night. Jones moved across the porch. Was she talking about the Prince William Hotel? Yes, last winter. One of the clerks who is Anne's nephew's friend recognized the maestro in Lenore. Everyone wants to nail a celebrity. I would want to know more, like who signed the register, when this incident took place. It sounds fishy. Well, I can verify this. Well, I don't want you to compromise your position, Jim. Easily done, said Gallagher. What, compromising your position? asked Jones, smiling. 
Being a parish priest requires not only a clean soil, but a clean reputation. By the way, how's your baseball camp going? Well, the camp is running great when Arnie Dewis isn't around. Jones scooped up the glass and finished the beer. An engine revved in the parking lot shadows, and the outlines of a white car vanished in the night. Now who the heck is that? You, sir, are overly suspicious. It's my nature, father. When you're dealing with murder, you can't be too careful. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 7. The most important thing, boys, is to step forward and meet the ball. Jones took a step forward at home plate, swung and fanned in the air. He compulsively gazed past the kids to the bleachers. Arnie Dewis and Bucky Driscoll had spent the last ten minutes heckling him from the top row. You make contact and you hit the ball. What if it isn't where you want it? asked Paul Hardy, a lanky 14-year-old. Then make sure it's your pitch, Paul. Watch the ball as it comes in. As he glanced at Mac near second base, hitting balls to the kids in the outfield, Arnie Dewis's annoying cackle echoed from the stands. Let's see the old timer hit one. Come on, coachy. Yeah, come on, coach, shouted Bucky. He stood and adjusted his belt and holster over his belly. Mac turned from second base. You want me to pitch some in, Matthias? Sure, he answered, trying not to grimace at Arnie and Bucky. Mac spread the boys around the outfield and carried the ball bag to the mound. Jones picked up a smooth new grainy bat and stepped to the plate. Don't get fancy, McMack. Yeah, we don't want any whiffers, cried Bucky. Jones swung the bat a few times and had his kid step back. Okay, Mac, let her rip. Mac nodded, stretched his arm, and then he hurled a quick-breaking curveball. Jones lunged out and lost his footing as he swung. As his knee hit the clay, Arnie Dewis's honking laugh accompanied Bucky's hee-haw garble. Ah, what a big K! A big K! Jones got up slowly and brushed the dirt off his knee. Mac had a sly expression over his round face. Okay, big boy, you throw what you want. Oh, now he's talking tough, called Arnie. Mac leaned forward and held the ball behind his back. He was probably twisting the cowhide and moving his fingers around the red stitching. This time he went into a full windup and the ball whizzed through the air. Jones swung viciously but only skimmed the top of the ball and sent it into the dirt. Two strikes, Macca, yelled Bucky through cupped hands. Strike him out, strike him out. Paul Hardy walked toward the bleachers like a sheriff to a Main Street gunfight and pointed at Bucky. Why don't you shut up, fat boy? Hey, you're talking to campus security. Yeah, he could nail you, said Arnie. Arnie raised his hands when Paul stepped a little closer. Hey, hey, just a little joke, just a little joke. Jones rubbed the clay around his hands, tightened his grip on the wood, and moved the bat around. Mac looked in from the mound, set and released the ball quickly, but it hung over the plate this time. Jones swung ferociously, cracking the ball into a high arc over the fence and into the conservatory trees. Everyone broke into wild applause. Jones trekked around the bases and the boys waited for him at home plate. They gave him high fives and pounded his back. That was a good wallop. Where'd you learn to hit like that, Mac? Where did you learn to pitch like that? Well, I was in the Angels' farm system. You never told me that. He held his elbow. Yeah, two operations tell you anything? 
Bucky and Arnie now stood in front of the bleachers. Arnie placed his hand next to his mouth. You got lucky, coachy. You know, I may just fund this thing myself next year. I'll contribute to that cause, said Mac. Paul Hardy looked toward Arnie and Bucky and then back toward Jones. We all will, coach. Those two guys are goofs. You just earned your certificate for the camp, said Jones. But as he looked to center field, Steve Corbett, holding the baseball, walked under the maple trees. Jones strayed into the infield. Mac, uh, can you wrap things up? Sure, go ahead, Matthias. Excuse me, boys. Nice hit, coach, yelled another one of the kids as Jones broke into a jog towards center field. Corbett moved away from the conservatory near the center field chain-link fence. He wore the same clothes from the hospital, but his brown hair was matted and greasy. At the fence, he held up the ball. I'd say you hit the 300 mark, coach. The fence is 300. One hell of a drive. You look distressed, Steve. I didn't sleep. Why not? asked Jones, meeting him at the fence. Corbett placed the ball in Jones's hands. You seem like a man who has the weight of the world on his shoulders. I figured I'd better find you before you found me. Oh? You probably want to know why I was over the hospital last night. I do. I know Coach Larson and was concerned for his health. Jones grinned. Well, that's real admirable, Steve. But couldn't it be you wanted to see him die and take the blame for the professor's murder? His right eye drifted to the side as he spoke slowly. I know Arnold and I never got along. That's why I'm talking to you. Why didn't you get along? Why didn't you get along? He produced a cutting, cocky laugh and sniffled several times. Oh, that's a mighty long story. I guess you could sum it up saying I never lived up to the old man's reputation. Arnie and Bucky now traipsed across the right field grass. Arnie sc Jones scaled the fence. In whose eyes didn't you live up to Nussbaum? My wife and my mother-in-law. Sounds like one hell of a motive for murder, Steve. Where were you yesterday morning around nine? Inside the library. I heard you checked with Dan Turley, or Chief Strickland did. Jones motioned him up the conservatory hill toward the Shaker building's gray fieldstone. Arnie yelled something from right field as Jones brought Steve next Come to one on, of the narrow colonial pane windows. On, we aren't allowed inside yet. You mean because it's a crime scene? Something about his speech was not right. Where Arnold was killed. Did you kill him? Steve's hesitancy bothered Jones. But when Steve looked back toward the library with teary eyes, Jones grabbed his upper arms. They think Lark Larson did it. I know that. I wanted Arnold dead, but no, sir. I did not kill him. I think Coach Larson was in the wrong place at the wrong time, okay? Story of his life. Should I get a lawyer? I'd damn well get a lawyer if you killed your father-in-law. I was in the first floor washroom in the library when the shots were fired. Arnie put his shoulder against Bucky's buttocks and tried to push him over the fence. Jones quickly escorted Steve along the building's fieldstone and clapboards. He spotted the ebony piano lid down, the yellow tape over the closed door, and the chalk outline around the cello on the floor. You have a witness as to where you were? It's on Dan's daily report. No, I mean a live witness, said Jones. 
Well, no. Nobody goes in the restroom while you're cleaning it. Somebody may have seen the cones. They reached the lower parking lot, boarded with the Fieldstone Walk connecting the library and the conservatory. You were in the service. Yes, sir. I was a lieutenant colonel. I was injured when a round went off at Pendleton. I'm sorry. Ruined my career. Ruined my marriage. I'm sorry about that, too. Who do you think killed your father-in-law? Steve's eyes widened and moistened. The man had a tremendous ego. He might have stepped on the wrong toes, coach. Whose toes? His lips compressed. Listen, I have to go. Where are you working today, Steve? Asked Jones as Arnie and Bucky started up the knoll. We're stripping floors in the English department, Grayson Hall. Did you sleep at home last night? Yeah, on the couch. Bernice was at her mother's house. She left after she accused me of what you just said. I'm not accusing you, but I think you'd be smart to get a lawyer, my friend. You can go down to L.G. Bentley and tell him I sent you. L.G. can contact the district attorney's office or George Strickland. You think I did it, don't you? I didn't shoot any gun. I don't know whether you did it or you didn't. Hey, Matthias! Called Arnie from the side lot. And why don't you go back to the English department before these jokers start in on me? And I'll call LG. Yes, sir. By the way, nice hit. Corbett's hips churned, producing an unusual gait along the brick walkway to the classroom buildings beyond the tree cluster. Jones turned as Bucky pointed. This guy knows when to stand corrected, and he stands corrected. Nobody needs to tell me when I'm wrong, so I'm corrected. I stand corrected. All right, you're corrected, said Jones. He looked at his watch. Strickland's pending arrival and trip to Nussbaum's house would bail him out of a conversation with Arnie and Bucky. What's the matter? You didn't make the pros? asked Arnie. Arnie, I didn't try out for the pros, said Jones, tightening his face. Chicken, huh? I had no desire to go to the pros. You can tell us if you're wimped out, said Bucky. Right, A.D.? Hey, I have a score to settle with you, said Jones. Me? What did I do? Not you, Arnie. Ah, yeah, yeah, the check is coming. No, the Bisbane brothers. Hey, you don't have to thank me. Thank you? I'm going to wring your neck, said Jones as Strickland's cruiser emerged at the library corner. Those guys have ripped my house apart. Yeah, I heard you let your pipes go, said Bucky. It's an old house, replied Jones. Strickland finally pulled alongside the gathering at the curb. Yeah, well, you're lucky they found it, said Arnie. Found it? I think they caused it. Jones pointed his finger at Arnie. And my Jeep is worse. Yeah, you like to let things go, don't you? Look, Arnie, said Jones, pointing his finger. Strickland's passenger side window moved down quickly. You ready, Matthias? Oh, yeah, I'm ready, George. Hey, Georgie, did you test that gun for dog hairs? Strickland stared at Arnie. Then he looked at Jones. Not yet, Arnie. We're uh, working on it. Jones opened the door and got inside. Arnie leaned in Strickland's window, and Bucky approached the other side until Jones stared him down. I tell you, that dog shot the professor. I've heard of dogs killing their owners. Well, we'll check it out, said Strickland as he shifted car rolled along, but Arnie stayed with the window. Yeah, it was canine homicide.
Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. Strickland finally broke free from Arnie, but Arnie and Bucky remained in the side mirror. Get me out of here, George. How about I spin the cruiser back and run them down? No objection here. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 8. Strickland stopped quick enough for Jones's seatbelt to tighten. Corbett was over the college. Why didn't you call me? George, what was I supposed to do? Cuff the guy? He's working in the English department, stripping floors if you want to talk to him. Strickland plucked his cell phone from the dash holder and checked the center button. Wendell! Yo! Wendell, Steve Corbett is working in Grayson Hall. I want you to bring him down the station and get an official statement from him. But George... Strickland left the college proper and rolled onto Main Street. Wendell, where are you? He clicked the cell phone and pressed his lips. I know where he is. Down the beach. He sits there in that cruiser and pretends he's checking the traffic. Jones stared out the window as they neared the Colonial House's weathered clapboards and paned windows. Corbett is weird, but Lenore Picarda, she latched on to Newsbaum. I wonder if there's something in the will for her. He'd have to leave her the whole kit and caboodle. Sounds like she admired, maybe even loved Newsbaum on some level. I haven't studied the law lately, but I don't think I can haul her in for that one. His brow tightened as Main Street curved and he swung onto Station Ave. You know, Wendell's going to get himself in trouble down the beach. We'll send somebody else on patrol down there. I might just do that. Set back from the road, an old gray-gabled house with lighter gray awnings was shadowed among the tall, aged hemlocks a navy blue Mercedes and a smaller powder blue BMW beige convertible were parked adjacent to an older garage with little diamond door windows. Strickland pulled behind the BMW. The convertible was down. How did she sound when you talked to her? Mrs. Newsbaum or Bernice? Mrs. I didn't speak with Bernice. He shut off the cruiser and opened the door. Jones pushed open his door and peered upward into the hemlock branches. What about Corbett? Well, you talk to him. Sounds like they treated him pretty bad, said Jones, still looking up as he passed the BMW. The beige interior had a new smell, even though the dash was slick and curved, and the stick shift was set between the bucket seats. Well, there's money here, that's for sure. I want to know if they really did push this guy. Strickland moved ahead of Jones up the steps and fingered the doorbell next to the heavy white panel door. Did he seem resentful? He seemed like he had some kind of disability. From what Lenore said, the ordinance accident ended his career. He ended up like a hanger-on. Well, I'm not comfortable with her volunteering that information. The door opened and Jones recognized the dark-haired woman with smooth white skin and deep bloodshot eyes. She wore a plain blue dress to the knee and looked serious. Chief Strickland and Matthias Jones. Father and I would run into you on the common when we played with Rex. I'm sorry about your father, Bernice, said Jones. Thank you. Would like to ask you a few questions. Sure. They drifted into a brighter room with painted panels lit by a wide bay window overlooking a small pond with ducks and two swans. Jones turned as a short, stout woman with permed white hair held a green handkerchief to her nose. She shuffled from a side parlor with half-drawn shades. I only agreed to this because I wanted the truth. Well, what do you think the truth is? asked Jones, wondering if he had overstepped his bounds. Did Locke Lawson kill my husband? No, I don't think he did. 
Well, he threatened Arnold several times. Lark? He was obsessed with the money he lent my father. Obsessed. He pressured father and said he would use extraordinary means to get the money back. Arnold was raising funds to pay Lark, said Mrs. Nussbaum. When will we get Arnold's cello back? Well, I'll have to check with the district attorney's office, said Strickland. Jones eyed a display case of sheet music and small musical knickknacks. Above a white marble fireplace was a painting of a German shepherd. Where is Rex? Oh, Rex is outside, said Bernice. Somebody is walking him, asked Jones. Rex has a little door within the kitchen door. He comes and goes. Rex is a good boy, said Mrs. Nussbaum. If only Rex could talk. He saw the whole god-awful thing. Yes, he did, said Jones. I heard him bark when Lark came in. See, said Bernice, pointing. Rex loved my father, and then Larson shot him. No, there were two shots. Lark may have not. The plain fact is, Mr. Jones, said Bernice, even though you are going to extraordinary means to protect your friend, and even though you assume he didn't kill my father, he was there and he fled. And I know the test showed he fired the gun. Oh, if you'll excuse me, said Strickland, who else would want your father dead? My father may have had detractors, but no enemies. Let's start with the basics. At the time of the shooting, we were both at Alicia's and Prince William, said Bernice. I understand that, replied Strickland. Mrs. Nussbaum looked up from her crumpled embroidered handkerchief. Arnold went to the conservatory with Rex every morning at 9 a.m., except when he was on vacation, and then the cello was brought along. It was a love triangle, Chief. Arnold, me, and the cello. How long were you away on vacation? Three weeks. Thank God we have the memories. We visited the Aegean, France, Great Britain. Rex stayed behind with Lenore Picotta. Oh, really? Jones raised his index finger from his chin. Then your husband must have trusted Lenore Picotta. Mrs. Nussbaum sat in the high-backed flowery chair. Of course we trusted her. Lenore has been his alter ego at the symphony for ten years. Bernice smiled for a brief second. I know where you're leading, Mr. Jones. My father was involved with no one but my mother. They were happily married for 51 years. Lenore was a friend to us all, said Mrs. Nussbaum. Was? asked Jones. Is? she answered quickly. Arnold thought the world of her, and Arnold ruled the roost. So Professor Nussbaum was accustomed to having his own way, said Jones. Yes said Mrs. Nussbaum. He had an autocratic sense about him. That could inspire bad feelings, said Jones. Not enough to kill him, Mr. Jones. I don't know how in God's name anyone would want to kill Arnold. I would question Steve. I would. Oh, Mother, Steve is just a blowhard. I take it, said Strickland. Steve and Mr. Nussbaum did not get along. They hated each other, said Bernice but not enough for Steve to do something stupid. Steve and I are basically estranged. We accept that relationship. Basically is a broad term, said Jones. Steve and I are still married. He comes and goes. Our house is next door, but there's no relationship. Do you own a gun? asked Strickland. Arnold or Steve? asked Mrs. Nussbaum. Both. 
Steve had guns from the service, said Bernice. I checked the garage. They're still in the case. Military issue. Well, the murder weapon is a new weapon, said Strickland. Then he knew how to fire a gun, said Jones. Well, sure. She winced as if she did not want to ask the next question. What kind of a gun was used? Smith and Wesson, 242, said Strickland. Have either of you ever seen such a weapon? Would you please leave us out of this, Mr. Strickland? We don't own any weapons. As for Steve... You talk about Steve as if he were an outsider, said Jones. I told you, there was and is a distance. We freely admit that, said Bernice. Why? Matthias, enough. We can continue this later if we have to. No, said Bernice, stepping forward. Mr. Jones has an excellent point. I was the wife of a respected man, a career officer, cut down because of a freak accident. And it's true, father had little tolerance for what Steve had become. But that was ongoing. Have you talked to Steve? In another room, the dog's paws clicked across the floor and something flapped. The large, young German shepherd bounced into the room. His tail wagged and he sat right next to Bernice. How did the dog react to this? asked Jones. I don't understand, said Bernice. Was the dog acting differently? asked Jones. Well, I think he misses Arnold, said Mrs. Nussbaum. She kissed into the ear. You're a good boy, Rex. He and father went to the conservatory every morning at nine. Jones paced with his index finger raised. See, I have trouble visualizing Rex here sitting by while somebody shot my father. Yes, unless it happened quick. Who else knew your father went to the conservatory every morning? asked Strickland. Steve, said Bernice. While we're in the process of interviewing him, he was working in the library yesterday morning, said Strickland. What was his reaction? I haven't seen Steve. Well, briefly, when we got back Sunday night. Yes, I understand. We'll talk to him. Thank you both. As if on cue, Bernice handed Strickland a gold card with black letters. My mother and I want to get to the bottom of this and then move on. Well, we're working with the district attorney's office and we'll keep you both informed. Strickland and Mrs. Nussbaum moved back to the foyer. Bernice raised her brows. A problem, Mr. Jones, you look pensive. What you said about your father's demeanor, did he have detractors? Critics, fellow chairs at the college, colleagues. Again, she smiled quickly. But I suppose you want names. The district attorney's office is interviewing everyone in the symphony. I'll compile a list for you if you think that will help. I'll wait and see what they find out. Did the dog react strongly to anyone? Rex hasn't growled at anyone, if that's what you mean. Right. So Mr. Nussbaum had no real enemies. Bernice turned to Strickland and then to Jones. Arnold Nussbaum had detractors, but no enemies. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 9. Gunshots are a great time saver, said Jones. Strickland turned obliquely at Delmonico's market and veered onto School Street's lumpy asphalt. His voice vibrated in sync with the cruiser. I want to speak with Corbett myself. We can place him within a hundred yards of the murder. That's too close for me. Well, I could call Rex to the stand, said Jones, smirking as the shadow slapped his face. 
He thought he saw Bucky's dented compact in a handicapped space near the automatic doors. Bucky Driscoll, I don't believe this guy. Don't get me going. I have to deal with Bucky at least three or four times a week. I have to listen to his theories and his biography. Well, I bet that's a real grabber. Jones glanced over his shoulder back to the market parking lot as Strickland pulled between the other cruisers along the brick station. Strickland laughed and shook his head as he got out. Jones followed him into the station. Rick, where's Wendell and Steve Corbett? The blonde-haired Rick looked up from one of the side desks. Oh, Wendell uh, is out back in the lunchroom. Where's Corbett? I didn't see him. Oh, great, said Strickland. He crunched his teeth and pivoted to the back corridor. Jones trailed him over the worn, squeaky hardwood boards. Wendell! Yo! said Wendell, popping from the lunchroom to the left. He held a huge coffee mug and dipped his hand into a full yellow and red plastic bag of crunchy corn chips. Where the hell is Steve Corbett? You tell me. I went into Grayson Hall. He ain't there, George, but he was. They were stripping floors, just like you said. But he went home sick. We were just on Station Ave. I didn't see Corbett. Strickland pressed his lips and turned to Jones. Well, let's bring him in. Well, I think that would be a good move, Wendell, if we knew where he went. I'm taking Rick with me. Strickland turned from the lunchroom and barked out something to Rick out front. Rick snatched his hat off the desk and both men exited via the screen door. The cruiser engine hummed and Jones faced Wendell. Do you know Corbett? No, I don't know him, said Wendell, crunching the corn chips as he spoke. Hey, Matthias, the beach was packed. Middle of summer. Endless summer. He gulped the coffee and wiped his sleeve over his lips. You wouldn't believe some of the women. Jones grinned. Wendell, you can't just sit there gawking. Why not? He leaned forward and the gray hair stuck out at the curly base of his dyed sideburns. You should have seen the dogs. Well, some women have it and some women don't. No, dogs. D-O-G-S, dogs. Some of those dogs leap ten feet high to catch frisbees. Ten feet? Sal's dog, you know that black lab? He can retrieve this tennis ball from a mile down the beach. Do tell. Arnie Dewis says dogs have a homing ability device in their brains. Well, all of life makes sense now. Well, I have to go. Mick Dumas told Arnie he was a jackass. John stopped at the door. Well, you tell Mick I owe him a drink at Club Max. Arnie was ripped. My respect for Mick is growing and growing, said Jones, turning. Wendell smiled. The yellow broken corn chips were wedged between his large teeth. I'll see you, Wendell. Wendell crammed more chips into his mouth and mumbled something as Jones left the station through the hall door. Main Street's late afternoon shadows extended across the common sheared grass. He headed to the intersection's traffic light and pushed the walk button. Ahead, the Fieldstone White and Clabboard Shaker Conservatory brought back images of the white-haired noose bombs sprawled over the cello. When the light changed, he moved through the crosswalk. The conservatory and the adjacent library's upper windows sunk behind the gymnasium once Jones reached the old tree-lined homes on the Hamilton Street Hill. Corbett hated noose bomb. But Jones was impressed by his ability to exaggerate and confound with a straight face. Pizza cooking in the corner building's ovens made him hungry. He briskly walked and thought about entering the gymnasium office, but continued under the trees. 
at the corner, the new five-story brick library, funded by the Fletchers, cast a dark shadow over his football practice field and the side soccer field. Steve Corbett was in the library yesterday morning, and Lark, as if he were driving a demolition derby car on one of the cable channels, raced his bomber around the conservatory. At the library corner, Jones studied the stone facade and upper white clapboards on the tree-shaded hill. Pane windows set in stone and reflected the upper window spans of the library and the blue sky. When the gun went off, Lark must have panicked and raced through the only door into the parking lot. Jones slowed near the sunken library entrance facing the conservatory. Lark had the motive, the means, and the opportunity, but in a nervous frenzy he would have confessed almost immediately. Jones pulled open the library's black framed doors. Behind the circulation desk, Harriet Graham typed something into the computer. She looked up and smiled. Well, hello, Matthias. Catching up on summertime work? I am. Only six weeks and the animals come back. You're getting cynical, Harriet. Comes with age. One of the benefits. What can I do for you? She gazed out the open window. Or do I have to ask with a murder taking place at the conservatory? Jones moved along the smooth black counter. Well, I suppose the district attorney's office has already badgered you. That is an appropriate word. Mr. Chance needs a course in manners. Why, he sent poor Lark to the hospital. Well, Lark is okay. Jones forward his brow and studied the seal-coated parking lot's yellow and white lines leading up to the conservatory. You saw Lark drive in here. Her hazel eyes opened wide. You mean I saw him land? That old car of his slid around the building. I couldn't see him go inside from my angle here at the desk, but I did hear the shot. Two shots. Yes, that is correct. How long between the time Locke arrived and the first gunshot? Oh, maybe a minute. But the dog barked between the shots. I heard that. Anyone else go in there? Asked Jones. No, Professor Nussbaum arrived just before nine, like he always does with his dog. They went inside and Lark pulled up maybe ten minutes later. But you didn't see anybody else. What about Steve Corbett? Steve was in here. Did he go over there? Asked Jones. She peered out the window screen and shook her head. I didn't see him over there. He was on the second floor and I would have seen him pass by here. All the other doors are locked and have emergency alarms. We mustn't have pilferage, Matthias. No, no, of course not. Any other exits? No, unless they had some kind of override on the alarm system. Harriet, that is an excellent point, said Jones as he glanced outside. The dark-haired Lenora Picotta was poking around the conservatory windows. What's she doing here? If you'll excuse me, I'm going back to the conservatory. I honestly didn't see anyone go in there other than Lark, but remember, money is the root of all evil. I don't think he did it, said Jones. Lenore stood on her tiptoes near one of the side windows. Jones did not see her jaguar. But Lark hasn't given a good account of his actions, that's for sure. He hasn't given a good account of his actions for the past 40 years. Now, now, said Jones, smiling. Thank you, Harriet. He quickly pushed the outside doors and trekked along the lot. Lenore's long hair was taken by the breeze as she slid along the stone facade. Her white slacks and a loose-fitting brown patent top were tightened with a thin gold belt at the waist. Her closeness to Nussbaum added to the early morning hotel incident still did not prompt Jones to think they were romantically linked. 
he called out well in advance of reaching her. Excuse me, Mrs. Picotta. She quickly crossed her arms. Three rings, an emerald, a diamond chip, and a bright gold band graced her smooth olive hands. Scents of a bold perfume were delivered by the wind gusts. She slipped her black-painted fingernails onto the white window sill, and with her back to Jones, enunciated her words in a clear, calm voice. Mr. Jones, just the person I wanted to see. Oh, asked Jones, leaving the brick walkway. He climbed up the grass. Why is that? She slowly turned from the window. I want to go inside. Well, the district attorney's office still has it locked. I wanted to go in there myself and figure this whole thing out. Why are you here? Her dark eyes lit up and she brushed her thick black hair. My intention is also to find Arnold's murderer. The newspaper said he owed Lock Larson money. I know Arnold wanted the new piano in the conservatory and he was having trouble raising funds. Did you know he went to Lock Larson for money? No. Why are you really here? asked Jones. I mean out here snooping. I beg your pardon? No. What are you doing out here? asked Jones, putting his hands on his hips. I was searching for another way in here. Well, forget it. One door on the other side of the parking lot. Through the glass reflections, Jones gazed at the new ebony piano, still closed, and a single piece of yellow plastic tape remained pinned across the lobby doorway. Those windows are closed now, but were they open yesterday? She raised her brows. I read in the paper that Steve Corbett was in the library. You tried to link Steve Corbett yesterday, Mrs. Picarda. Where were you yesterday? Oh, please call me Lenore. Her dark eyes had a persuasive vibrancy. As I said to you yesterday, Mr. Jones, I was shopping in Prince William. I heard the report on the radio. Alone shopping? Yes, alone. Now look, don't accuse me. Why not? I have word you were seen leaving a Prince William hotel with Professor Nussbaum in the wee hours of the morning. She smiled as if she had anticipated the question. Her glossy red lipstick was perfectly applied to her smooth lips. Mr. Jones, there was no romantic inclination here. Please, you are drawing conclusions that are, I must say, unsupported. Arnold was my mentor. Then why were you at the hotel? If you must know, my husband and I went out, and he disappeared after dancing. I was incredibly distraught. The maestro picked me up. Where was the mayor? I will not compromise my relationship with my husband. You aren't the police. Jones crossed his arms over his jersey. And you think Steve Corbett killed Nussbaum? If he did murder Arnold, I'm at a loss as to how he slipped out of here. Why would he kill? asked Jones. Culminated pressure, years of aggravation. Arnold could be demanding, and I think Steve somehow snapped. I see. Jones crunched his nose. I need to get back in there. He pulled out his cell phone and punched in Strickland's number. Lenora turned back to the window as the line rang. Strickland. George. Corbett isn't at his house, Matthias. Neither is his car. What does Corbett drive? White El Camino. It's an antique, said Lenore. Jones raised his brows. Did you hear that, George? I did. Who are you with? Mrs. Picotta, outside the conservatory. When can I get inside? He leaned near Lenore's shoulder and again peered in the window. Well, I can get you in there, but I tell you, the place has been thoroughly checked. 
I think Corbett somehow got into the conservatory, George, being in maintenance, plus maybe he had access. I read Rowland's questioning of Harriet Graham. Corbett was on the second floor of the library. Somebody would have seen him outside. Well, I know, but somebody had to have gotten into this building, unless Lark actually did it. I hate to say it, George, but Lark isn't exactly off the endangered list. I just talked to that lawyer of his, said Strickland. Well, he picked the right client, said Jones, smiling as Lenora's dark eyes swung back toward him. I'll be there in ten minutes. Well, I'll be here. He clipped off the phone and faced Lenore. Anything different inside? Looks the same as it always does. This whole thing makes no sense. He wondered if Lenore were putting forth an elaborate charade. Did you mind house-sitting? Maybe you would have liked to have gone to Europe. She fixed her smile. I've watched the Nussbaum house over the years. Besides, it's summer. You don't have to worry about the cold and pipes freezing and breaking. But don't mention pipes breaking. I don't understand. No, it's a long story. So you would often stay at their house. Did your husband mind your being alone here in Hamilton? She held his wrist. My husband is a busy man, Mr. Jones, and I didn't mind being alone. Rex is a great watchdog. He didn't watch very well yesterday. Well, that's a good point, she said, looking up. Rex always barks at strangers. Yeah, well, he barked yesterday, but only after the first shot. And I assume he was barking at Lark. She nodded. Am I on your suspect list? They walked along the gray stones around the building. Whoever killed Nussbaum fired and left. Lark burst inside, yet saw no one leave, and Harriet Graham at the library only saw Lark in the area. Somebody could have come in from the open windows facing the library, but Harriet would have seen them. And the upper windows and the couple of windows are always locked. Grass separated the parking lot and the stone walkway around the gray barnboard doors. Maybe they hid inside. But where? I don't know. I just can't believe that Arnold is dead. And I keep wondering about Steve. Steve hated Arnold. And Arnold hated Steve. Then prove it. They reached the front entrance. Jones panned the parking lot and more brick campus buildings behind the trees. You know, somebody approaching from the south campus would not be seen from the library, Mrs. Picotta. Maybe Steve somehow looped around, but Mr. Larson was admittedly inside the library, inside the conservatory. Lark Larson, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. I share Arnold's displeasure and anger at Steve Corbett. Steve Corbett has no ambition and cares little for his wife's standing. He is a cad. You're being awful hard on him. The man had a military accident. Did you know Corbett? Sure. Jones nodded on the steps. He said nothing for the longest time as he waited for Strickland. But the hotel incident described by Father Gallagher festered inside his head. Lenore, I think you and Nussbaum had something going. No, 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 we never did. You make it sound like you wanted to, said Jones. Her eyes watered. I admired him greatly, and yes, maybe on some level I wanted his affection. But you were rebuffed. Please. Strickland's cruiser crunched the library parking lot, scattered sand. He shut off the engine and the door opened. Find anything new? Nothing I can figure out. We're thinking maybe somebody hid inside. Mrs. Picotta? Chief? Rick and I searched the conservatory again after our initial investigation. 
Nothing in the basement. We even checked the coupler in the upper windows. They don't open. He took out a new brass key. I hope Courtney cut this key right. Well, Courtney can't cut the keys. Mrs. Jefferson never misses. I was supposed to call Courtney. Well, that's a return call I'd avoid. Strickland inserted the key but couldn't twist it. Oh, here we go. You know, I drove all the way home once last winter, freezing cold, and I couldn't get into my house because Courtney muffed cutting the key. He jiggled the key and the heavy wood barnyard door finally opened. More plastic yellow tape was strewn across the frame. He jiggled the key and the heavy barnboard door finally opened. More yellow plastic tape was strewn across the frame. Jones looked into his friend's dark eyes. This looks like Bucky's handiwork. Strickland slapped away the tape. You know, except for the beginning, he's really stayed out of this investigation. Didn't Nigel threaten to take away the car? He's had a couple of accidents. He better be good. Strickland grinned as they moved up the steps into the rough-tiled lobby. Mrs. Picotta, you think somebody hid in here? I'd like to check downstairs, see if somebody was down there. Like Steve Corbett, asked Jones. Exactly. Strickland locked his arms over his uniform. Would he have the nerve to kill Nussbaum? She smiled and her dark eyes widened. Steve is the type of guy who will do what he has to do. You find that exciting, said Jones. Her smile dropped. I beg your pardon. It was just an observation. I'm going to browse around up here, if that's all right, George. Sure. Strickland motioned Lenore to a set of carpeted stairs descending from the lobby, and he flipped on the side light switch. The lower area is used for receptions and individual instruction, she said as they moved downstairs. The basement windows are closed with levers, said Strickland. Jones walked ahead and entered the Brighton Conservatory through the open doors. He looked up at the blue sky through the upper windows, where the rafters narrowed, and finally dismissed the windows as a possible entry point. He climbed the rising orchestra section to the library windows. The chain-link fence surrounded the baseball. The chain-link fence surrounding the baseball field was visible through the panes. He turned and looked into the sunlight's glare on the white chalk outline of the cello and Nussbaum's body stretched over the glossy floorboards. Whoever walked in here would have walked in quietly. He could almost hear the sound of Nussbaum playing the cello, his back to the panel doors. Yet the dog did not bark until after the first shot. Maybe Rex knew the assailant. The new ebony Steinway shined in the afternoon light. It had an odd jazzy configuration with sweeping angles and swirled supports. Nussbaum's extravagant lifestyle would allow him to run up a debt to obtain the instrument. No one he had considered as a suspect had anything to gain from killing Nussbaum. This murder was an act of anger and vengeance. Steve Corbett fit that category. Jones moved down the stairs and walked directly to the piano. I see you've figured it all out, Matthias. Jones recognized Nigel's proper voice, but before he turned to the lobby doors, he observed a short scratch on the new piano's front leg. He squatted for a better look. Well, that's interesting. Well, I have something interesting for you, and it must be kept confidential. Jones looked up. Only Nigel would wear a light blue sport coat and white slacks when he had no official duties in the middle of summer. You mean something to do with Nussbaum, Nigel? Nigel descended the stairs, and his spit-shined shoes squeaked on the floorboards. Even if he were playing the cello, Nussbaum might have heard someone crossing the room. 
You probably know that Mick Dumas is leaving Hamilton. Yeah, for New Mexico. Matthias, Mick Dumas's contract was not renewed. Well, I didn't know that. Jones placed his fingers on his temples. Let me guess, on the recommendation of Arnold Nussbaum. That is exactly right. Sometimes you amaze me. Come to think of it, Mick was around the building after the murder. I talked to him. What did Nussbaum say about him? Professional incompetence, lack of testing. Students would sail through his classes with no monitoring, and there were no reports of any involvement with the students. Oh, really? Jones stood and crossed his arms near the piano. Nigel, you can't fire somebody because of rumors unless the Fletchers were involved in this. No, oh, dear God, no, I don't think so. And I would not let this get back to Hamilton Fletcher. Nor would I release Mick because of rumors. I thoroughly interviewed his students. There were little demands and no requirements. Mick Dumas was in direct violation of his own course outlines. Well, we'll hang up his wanted dead or alive poster. Jones thought for a few moments. Okay, but the question still remains, how did anyone get in and get out? I'll leave the logistics of this in your able hands. Jones lingered at the piano. What was his reaction when he was told he wasn't coming back? Nothing at all. He was blank. Maybe it was denial. As a matter of record, I haven't spoke with him since. How would he know Nussbaum spoke with you about his competence? When did that happen? It happened actually after the student concert in March. Some of Dumas's pupils were not up to it, if you know what I mean. Dragged down Haydn. If I didn't talk to him outside after the murder, I'd dismiss all of this, said Jones as Strickland and Lenore moved back into the hall. Any place to hide, George? Like I said, we searched downstairs when we initially got here. Lenore stayed in the lobby. Windows sealed, no one could hide downstairs. And no way out except the windows. Only the three library-facing windows were open, said Strickland. Or you'd have to exit up here through the door into the parking lot. That's exactly what Lark did. Jones's eyes traced the smooth wood contours of the pristine piano surface. The keys were bright, and he wondered how the piano actually sounded. If I were a lawyer and I was weighing evidence, I would say Lark killed Nussbaum. He was agitated and he had the motive. Don't even say that, said Nigel. You only have to let your guard down once to murder Nigel, said Jones. He fired the gun, we know that. The only thing out of sequence is the time separating the shots. Well, we're boxed in, said Strickland, wiping his forehead as his cell phone sounded. He continued looking at Jones as he took the phone call. Strickland. Yes. Then don't talk to him, Wendell. Tell him to get lost. What? Well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Where is Lark now? Okay. Strickland cut the call and licked his lips before he spoke. That lawyer of Lark's is threatening to have Lark plead guilty. Jones stomped forward. Why would he do a bonehead thing like that? I don't know why. Wendell says this guy is causing a scene at the station. I have to go. Well, Lark can't be guilty, said Nigel as they headed for the door. I need to come back here later. Jones again caught sight of the scratch on the new piano as he scooted up the stairs. Nigel exchanged social pleasantries with Lenore as they descended the lobby steps.
Did anybody check out that scratch on the piano support? Plain fact is we don't have any fingerprints on that piano or the weapon. But you can come back and catalog every scratch and nick if you want to, said Strickland. Jones followed him through the door and onto the concrete steps. Maybe I will, George. Maybe I will. Steve Corbett, hateful son-in-law of Professor Newsbaum. Corbett had some kind of injury to his head in the military, and he was in an adjacent building in the conservatory. Lark has a lawyer, Sid Smolt, his bizarre friend from his college days at Kokomo U. Jones becomes suspicious when he sees the mayor's wife, Lenore Picotta, pawing away at the conservatory windows. And what about the murder weapon? It was a stolen weapon. Things look bleak with Lark testing positive for nitrates. Corbett and Lenore near the murder scene was unusual but not damning. And why would Lenore kill Nussbaum? Well, I don't know. Well, at least for now. And there's no fingerprints on the piano or the murder weapon. Maybe it was Rex the dog. He did it. Come on, Buckster. Yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming. Let's solve this murder. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.